Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Uh, Today we are going to have baptisms at the end of the service, and so we're going to end a little differently. So if you have your next step card, please fill that out. Uh, but you would place that in the offering basket when you uh, leave the room rather than uh, when the baskets are passed. And so uh, at the end of the service, when you're uh, leaving, you can put your offering in. Next step cards there. I want to start by reading a passage from 2 Kings 5. So you can follow along on the screen, or if you want to follow along on your app, you can open that up. Or if you have your Bible, open that up. It's 2 Kings uh, chapter 5. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him uh, ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots to stop at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent the messenger to him, saying to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that you would surely come out to me. Uh, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servant went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan River seven times, as the man of God told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. All right, we're going to walk through this story and make applications to our lives today. And the first and central character in this story is Naaman. Uh, He's the commander-in-chief of the country known today as Syria. Uh, The writer of Scripture says Naaman is a great man. Uh, He was highly respected by those above him and below him. He was respected 
for his efforts in battle. Uh, he was courageous. Uh, he had engineered many victories. And in that day, war heroes were like the celebrities of the culture. Uh, they carried enormous influence. Uh, they had a kind of power available to them. Uh, they were viewed as prominent people in the culture. And we read in this very first verse of this passage that Naaman was this valiant, celebrated soldier, except he had one big problem. He had leprosy. In our day, maybe it would read in the news that a four-star general had pancreatic cancer. Uh, we would read that and we would think, this is someone who is going to die. Uh, it would be the same with leprosy in that day. It was incurable. Anyone who had leprosy was going to die. Uh, it might be weeks, it might be months, it might be years, but uh, it was a terminal disease. The next character we meet in the story is a young Jewish girl who was a servant to Naaman's wife. Uh, now, how does a young Israeli girl end up in Syria serving in the home of a celebrated soldier? It's because Syrian soldiers would sneak into border towns in Israel and kidnap these young girls. They would rip them right out of their family's arms. They would tear them from their homes, and then they would sell them to affluent Syrians back home. And these girls would work as servants for the rest of their lives. It was a terrible thing. Now, when you think of this from the perspective of this young kidnapped girl, can you imagine how terrified she must have been when she was captured and dragged away? And what it would be like to be treated like a piece of property by this band of criminals and then sold like a farm animal at an auction. I mean, can you imagine what that would do to the psyche and to the soul and to the faith of a young girl? As hard as it, as hard as it might be to believe, the writer of Scripture tells us that when this young girl, this young Israeli servant girl, learned that her master's husband, Naaman, this valiant soldier, had contracted leprosy, she didn't delight in his misfortune. But rather, she pulls aside Naaman's wife and says, it's a shame that Naaman wasn't back in Israel because there the prophet uh, of God would heal him because the God of Israel has the power to do such a thing. Now, that's an incredible response from this young kidnapped girl to show any concern at all for the family who is keeping her in captivity. Wouldn't you agree? Wouldn't she have the right to just kind of revel in the knowledge that her boss's husband was headed to an early grave? But she demonstrates compassion for him. She let him know there was someone who could heal him. We'll come back to this in just a moment. Uh, the next character in the story is the king of Syria. Uh, this is Naaman's boss, who when he heard that there might be a prophet in Israel with healing power, strongly encourages Naaman to travel there just to kind of give it a shot. And so he loaded up with gifts and money and clothing from the coffers of the king. Naaman and his entourage head to Israel, looking for this famous Old Testament prophet, Elisha. Now, Elisha, for whatever reason, decided that God wanted him to heal Naaman, but he wanted him to do it at arm's length. And so Elisha doesn't even come out of the house to acknowledge this celebrated uh, war hero from Syria. He simply sends a messenger outside to say, if Naaman wants his leprosy cured, the God of Israel can do it. It's not a problem. Just go down to the Jordan River, wash yourself in it seven times, and God, in fact, will heal you. That's it. No long sermon, no dramatic 
prayer meeting, no secret anointing of oil, no putting his hands on Naaman's forehead and slaying him in the spirit while the choir sings in the background. Like no little caption on the bottom of the screen telling you to where, send, where to send your money. Elisha just sends a messenger out and he says, if Naaman is serious, God can heal him. He just has to go wash seven times and he'll be healed. And Naaman is kind of ticked off by this lack of respect. The writer tells us, Naaman said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Naaman says, I don't even like the marching orders to go and wash in the Jordan River. I mean, there's much greater rivers in Syria than the muddy waters of the Jordan. Um, I've been to the Jordan River. Uh, it's not a spectacularly beautiful river. Um, it would be like the river that runs through Niles Canyon. Uh, maybe a little worse than that. I mean, and so Naaman is kind of disgusted and he feels a little disrespected. The writer says he turns his chariot around, took his entourage and headed back to Syria. He's in a rage. And the same passion that made him this powerful, courageous leader, you know, it takes a lot of passion to lead. Uh, it takes a lot of fire to be a great soldier. It's that same passion that's fueling his anger that he was so disrespected by this religious faith healer from Israel. And so he leaves. He's done with it. His servants catch up to him to calm him down. They say to him, Naaman, uh, we know you well. I mean, if Elisha had told you to do some great thing to receive this healing, I mean, if he would have said to defeat a, a fortified city or to capture 2,000 enemy soldiers, if he would have told you to prove your courage in order to receive the healing, you would have done it. We know you, Naaman. We followed you. Like you have risen to whatever challenge has been in front of you. If Elisha would have put a great challenge before you, uh, just that's how you're wired, you would have gotten it done. It just so happens, though, that this prophet is requesting that you do a simple thing, a humble thing. They requested that you go bathe in a nearby river seven times. Like, why don't you just go give it a try and see what happens? I mean, it's worth a shot, Naaman. And so after thinking about it for a little while, this high-powered, battle-hardened, valiant-driven leader does something that he probably has never done in his life. He humbles himself. He humbled himself before his attendants, and he says, you know what, you're probably right. He humbled himself before the prophet Elisha. He humbled himself before the God of Israel because it's the God of Israel whose power is going to provide the healing. And this powerful soldier heads down into the muddy waters of the Jordan River, and he washes seven times. And he comes up out of the water the last time, and his leprosy is gone. And the writer of Scripture says he was washed, he was washed so clean, his leprosy was cured to such an extent that he had skin like that of a little child. I don't know if you've been around a little child recently, those of you who have infants. I mean, imagine this old guy getting not just a cure from leprosy, but having skin like a little child. And Naaman declares before Elisha, his attendants, and everyone there, now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Naaman not only had a physical healing, in that moment, he had a spiritual healing. I know that it's true that God is the true God, and I now submit my entire life to him. And so he thanks Elisha, 
sincerely offers him gifts, which Elisha refuses, and then Naaman heads back to Syria. Uh, now, I want to make four quick applications from this story to our lives. And the first one is right out of the first line of uh, this passage. It's, it's about this central character, Naaman, and about his career as a military leader. Uh, the writer of Scripture describes Naaman as a highly regarded commander in the army and a valiant soldier. And so here's the first application for us. Do your absolute best at whatever you put your hand to do. Do your absolute best. Naaman was considered a great man. He was highly respected by everyone uh, below him or above him. Uh, he was a valiant soldier. He won many battles. He had a pretty good resume. Question, how would people describe you in your chosen field, in your chosen vocation, if they had a few sentences to describe you? What would they say? Would they say, she's a great woman. He's a great man. They're a great person who is highly respected in our office, at a school, in our neighborhood. They're an incredibly loving person. They're incredibly effective at what they do. Believe it or not, it is a foundational value of the Christian faith that whatever God calls you to do, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, whatever God calls you to do, that you distinguish yourself with your colleagues and with your customers by exhibiting character and competence in such a way that you actually bring glory to the God you serve. Let me show you a few verses on this. Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. You know, sometimes I'll hear people say things like, yeah, I have kind of a cush job. It's not an ideal job, but it pays the bills. And I think to myself, are you doing your work with all of your might? Are you doing your job to the fullest of your potential with a measure of excellence that would actually impress your boss and the people around you? The writer of Scripture says, whatever your hand finds for you to do, do it with all your might. Look at this next verse, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. It's so interesting to me. Whatever you do, don't do it to some standard that you've established in your own heart. Don't do it to some standard that your organization has set for you. The Apostle Paul says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In any situation, whatever you are doing, say to yourself, would God be happy with this? In the way that I'm doing this little task, in the way that I'm handling this situation, would this glorify the great God in heaven who I have a relationship with? It's a whole different standard than we usually hold ourselves to. Look at Colossians 3. Whatever you do, work out with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you are serving. Now, I really don't know what motivated Naaman to distinguish himself like he did, but the writers of Scripture call all of us who are followers of Christ to work in a manner that brings glory to God, to work at whatever we do in whatever environment that we are in um, as if Jesus himself were our supervisor. And we had an opportunity to honor him with our attitude and with our focus and with our creativity, with our intensity and with our effectiveness. I don't know about you, but this is inspiring to me. Like how you work actually makes a difference in the people around you. 
And I want to say this to all of you who are followers of Christ, who have uh, work in the workplace every day. You need credibility in your life. You need credibility in your Christian witness. Some of you really care about your colleagues. Like some of you really do care about your boss and the people that you work with. And you want to make a difference and you want to, you want to see them come to faith someday. Well, you need credibility in your Christian witness. And the fastest way to earn credibility is not to walk around with Christian paraphernalia on. It's not to, like, leave your Bible open on your desk. It's to work hard. It's to serve diligently. It's to show up and to add as much value as you can, and thereby gaining the kind of credibility so that when you actually speak about your faith, there's respect involved, and people will listen to you. I don't know what fired up Naaman to be at his peak of his chosen profession, but I know what ought to fire us up to be at the peak of ours. Whatever you put your hand to do, the writer of Scripture says, do it with all your might. Do it all for the glory of God. Do it as if Jesus were your direct supervisor and you're giving him glory. And then you'll have all kinds of impact and influence on the people around you. So how are we doing on this one? All right, the second application from this story is this. Do good wherever you are, no matter what has been done to you. And if any of the characters in this story had a reason for having a bad attitude, it would have been this servant girl. I mean, ripped away from her parents' arms, hauled away from her family, her brothers, her sisters, loaded up like an animal, uh, more than likely abused en route, and then sold at an auction. I mean, this is a terrible thing that has happened to this young woman. And as an aside, I know people, and I'm sure you do too, with so much less to complain about than this little girl. I know people who demonstrate a persecution mindset or they play the victim card or the like poor me card all day, every day. I mean, they make everyone around them miserable because they're the victim. They're bitter and angry because the world has treated them so poorly. They make everyone else pay. Like everyone else around them has to pay because something bad has happened in their life. Despite what happened to this young woman, which was really bad, when she sees Naaman's leprosy, she has this capacity for empathy. I mean, it's significant. She has this compa capacity for empathy. And she remembers a prophet in her homeland who had the power to heal the sick in the name of the God of Israel. And despite all the stuff that had happened to her in the by the hands of the Syrians, of which Naaman was the commander, this young woman is just trying to help. And she says to Naaman's wife that if Naaman could just go to Israel, there's a God who is so good, and there is a God who is so powerful, and there is a God who is so loving that he could be healed. God had done something miraculous in this little girl's life. God had done something redemptive to address the, the bitterness and the vengefulness, and he replaced that with a spirit of compassion and empathy. How did that happen? Like, what was at work that went on in her heart that changed her from this angry, vengeful young woman to someone who has the capacity for compassion and empathy? Well, we don't know specifically. The text doesn't say specifically. But in the teachings of Jesus, he is so clear about this. Jesus says, no matter what has happened to you, no matter how badly you've been treated, no matter how many things have gone wrong in your life, 
Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. It's incredible, isn't it? And then look at this passage in Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And if we lined up 100 people at Blue Oaks and we asked, like, how much evil has come your way? Like, how much bad has been done to you? I mean, we would hear some serious stories. I've heard a lot of really bad stories of things that have happened to people in our church. And there's something in me. There's like this prophetic thing or this justice thing that says, like, I wish someone would pay for the wrongs that have happened to people. And then I have to look at Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We just can't let these things get their claws in us in a way that turns us into these spiteful, revenge-seeking people. If we do that, no one wins. It will poison you on the inside, and it will hurt everyone else. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This servant girl, she was living this out. She was overcoming evil with good. One more verse. I love this one. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So here's this little servant girl to whom bad things had happened. And she sees a need in her mistress's husband, and she thinks, well, I can tell them about God. And so here's my question to you. When is the right time to do good for others? When is the right time? Yeah, now is the answer I was thinking of, right? The right time is now. Where's the right place? So there's this young girl. She's in another country. She's oppressed. She's a servant. She's in the right place to do good. It's right where you are. In your job, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your school. You may say, well, I don't like where I live. I don't like my neighborhood. I don't like my school. Do good right where you are. And if something bad happens to you, believe in the promise that we studied for the whole month of October, that God can take the worst things that happen to you. Romans 8.28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. All right, the third application from this passage is a little broader. Go for help when you need it. Naaman had leprosy. There's no known cure. He could have very easily fallen into a funk and just cried, woe is me, turned to alcohol, turned to painkillers, just laid around binging on Netflix shows. But in this story, when the servant girl just mentions that there might be help from someone in the nation of Israel, Naaman decides to go give it a shot. He packs his bags. He walks in the direction that might be helpful. Now, you might think, well, what's so noteworthy about this? Like, this is just obvious, right? Well, I've been a pastor for a lot of years, and it still surprises me how often I meet people in the church who need help. They really need help. But they won't actually take the responsibility and seek out that help. I meet people with marriage problems, with a pain in their marriage, and I'll say to them, well, we know fantastic marriage counselors, and we'll give them a referral for a marriage counselor, someone who uh, has the, the knowledge, the wisdom, a godly people who could help them. And I'll say, seek them out. We'll suggest a counselor that they could get help from. And no action is taken. 
And months later, I'll run into that couple and they'll tell me about their divorce. I meet people with financial complexities and it's understandable. I mean, sometimes the rug just gets pulled out from underneath us. And so I meet with people and I'll say, you know, we have a small group that's led by some great people who could help you get your financial life in order. We have financial mentors who could help you sort things out and we give them a name and we ask them to make a call. And six weeks later, when I talk to them, no action has been taken and they're filing for bankruptcy. I meet people who are in a spiritual rut and they're just stuck. And I'll tell them, you know what, being stuck is not a problem. We all get stuck, but you don't want to be stuck for very long. And I'll tell them about a Bible study they can join or a small group they can join, a list of things that they can do to actually get unstuck. And I'll walk into them six or eight weeks later and they're still stuck. When you need help, it's your responsibility to seek it out, to try something, to risk something, to read something, to register for something. You've got to do something. Inaction is rarely the answer. You have to seek help when you're stuck. All right, here's the final point that I want to make. Do the simple thing God asks of you. Naaman comes close to forfeiting his miraculous healing because he felt disrespected when Elisha wouldn't come to see him. And he was angry because he was asked to wash himself in the muddy waters of the Jordan River, and he gets all bent out of shape. He gets in his chariot. He's riding back to Syria. He's like, who needs this? And he was so close to missing this miraculous healing. What was at the root of all of his rage? It was just old-fashioned pride. It was just old-fashioned, I want it my way, on my terms kind of pride. I'm never going to yield my sense of authority or control to anyone. I'm never going to do anything that I don't want to do. And if it weren't for that little travel team around Naaman, he would have driven back to Syria in that chariot, his chest all puffed out, feeling very powerful, only to die of leprosy a short time after that. And if, he had, if they had done an autopsy report on him at that point, the most accurate cause of his death would not have been leprosy. It would have been pride, this old-fashioned arrogance, the need to be in control. And thank God for servants who knew him well and took the risk. I mean, they reminded him that he's this great soldier. He's this valiant fighter. He's this kind of get-it-done guy. But they also said, hey, Naaman, the only thing standing between you and a healing is just doing this simple thing. Now, there's a little difficult dynamic underneath it, but the thing itself is so simple. Just go into the water and wash yourself seven, seven times like a five-year-old could do this, Naaman. But underneath that was a more difficult thing. They knew Naaman was going to have to humble himself before the prophet and before the God of Israel. He was going to have to surrender his control and do something that someone else told him to do. And another thing he was going to have to do, by now the leprosy probably would have spread all over his body. If he went down into the river, took off his military uniform or his armor or whatever he wore, he was going to expose the leprosy to everyone who watched. Maybe he had the leprosy pretty well hidden with long sleeves or whatever it took, but he was going to have to take all that stuff off and people would see how sick he really was. There were a lot of reasons why Naaman didn't want to do 
this rather simple thing. You know, today we have a tub of water in the front of our church. Uh, Now, there are larger, prettier bodies of water in the Bay Area. Uh, But we're asking all of you who believe in Jesus Christ, those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, but you've not been baptized, we're asking you to do a simple thing. Jesus is asking you to do a simple thing. He's asking you to be baptized. He's asking you to go under the water, symbolizing the burial of your old self, of your sin, of your independence from God, and then coming out of the water, symbolizing that you've been washed clean, raised to new life. Now, how tough is that? It's not tough at all. But it's tough for some people because pride-filled people have a hard time with this. Pride-filled people just go, you know, why do we need to do this? You know, why do I need to get soaking wet and have like a bad hair day in front of like all these people? And you kind of feel the pride that starts swelling up. You know, I have a relationship with Christ. Like, why do I have to go public and do this kind of thing? And the answer is because Jesus asks us to do a simple thing. Jesus asks you, if you've put your faith in him, to take this step in your spiritual journey. But we take a simple thing, and because of pride, we kind of resist the instructions. And some of you might be asking, well, if it's such a simple thing, then why do we have to do it? Let me give you another way of looking at this. You know, what if when you became a Christian or if a condition of becoming a Christian was that you had to go out and you had to go do some complicated thing? Like right now, if I had the authority to say to you, you could receive salvation, you could be washed clean from your past, you could be guided uh, through the rest of your life by the Holy Spirit, and you could wind up in heaven forever. But here's what you would have to do to receive it. You would have to go out and feed a 1,000 starving children for a year. You have to raise the money. You have to do it through Compassion International or whatever you have to do, but you have to feed a 1,000 starving children for a year. And if you do, you're good. I mean, salvation, washed clean, guided by the Holy Spirit, you're totally good. Or you had to go build 20 homes with Habitat for Humanity or you had to clothe a certain number of homeless people, or whatever it is, if I asked you to do this great thing, and you were still in control, and you could still earn this thing, many of you would go do it. I mean, you would go do it in a heartbeat. You would get it done. And then you'd be able to say, I did it. I did it by myself. I saved myself. But that's not the way it works. The writer of Scripture says, you need to be washed clean And you need to do this simple thing. But underneath it is this tougher part because you have to actually get past your pride and your independence. And you actually have to say, I have sinned before a holy God. And I can't rectify that. I can't reconcile myself before a holy God. I need help from a third party. I need what Jesus Christ did on the cross to be applied to my life. And I humbly receive salvation and this washing clean as a free gift. You have to humble yourself, like Naaman did. And you walk into the water, and you ask God to wash you clean. In a few moments, we're going to listen to Gina's story. And after she's baptized, the band is going to play a closing song. And during that song, we're going to ask those of you who have maybe been thinking about this for the last week or for the last month, you've known in your spirit that you need to be baptized, but maybe something has gotten in the way. 
And we're going to just ask you to consider stepping forward and just doing this simple thing. But we all know there's something underneath this simple thing that involves surrender, uh, submission. And that takes a lot of spiritual courage. Some of you have trusted Christ, but for whatever reason, you have not humbled yourself and taken this step in your spiritual journey. And so we're just going to ask you to have the courage to do this simple thing and just come out of your seat and just come forward and be baptized. Those of you who have already been baptized, would you just pray for everyone else in the room? There are probably people in here that need to be baptized, and so would you just pray for them? All right, let me pray right now. God, you are at work in our hearts today the same way you worked in the heart of this great military leader thousands of years ago who humbled himself before you, and he wound up doing this simple thing, and it led to these huge results in his life. And God, I ask that you would move in a similar way in the hearts of those who are going to do this simple thing and be baptized today. Pray that the results in their lives would be huge, that you would bless them as they take this step in their spiritual journey. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, if you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 8.45, 10, and 11.15. Uh, for directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today.